You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss employs the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. And welcome once again to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd Podcast. Nerds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not experts. We do not claim to know it all. We're just like sifting through this stuff and learning stuff and talking about it. And uh, anyone that has... Uh, been with us this whole ride i think they figured that out by now i wonder how many people are sitting there going well that's not the way i heard it (laughs) (laughs) well i I think of any episode this is going to be the one where most people are going to be like well that's not the way i heard it well Well, that's why we brought notes this time yeah and you know you never know what that's what we're trying to do is kind of sift through this stuff and figure out what's fact what's fiction and you know sometimes the myth is better than the than the reality i yeah. you know it's better to to not know that's part of the what makes kiss that's part of the charm of kiss especially in this era is that it, there's so much you don't know and you're, again you're having to fill in with mm-hmm. your own the mat you know you it's what you bring into it with you and that's what made it fun now exactly. we're kind of looking at it from hindsight and it's almost like you know it's hard not to to look at it through some sort of cynicism or whatever and 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 it takes kind of some of the fun out of it in in being present in the moment but you know you can't do that now and but, I actually i'm sorry sorry cap i actually kind of help paint that picture though if we want to we can kind of look back at where we are now and kind of maybe look at the 70s as a whole like where is culture now at this point in that kind of kind of mid 70s of right after alive cuz at this point like you say kiss is starting to kind of seep into you know the consciousness yeah, just that gonna, touch it's about to get like crazy before we start yeah we should introduce ourselves that's right we're you know we're not professional broadcasters <laughs> so we ought to do this correctly yeah just so people know i'm russ ward and with me is cap nun hello everybody alex stiff hello hello from the something good for you podcast mm-hmm. yes indeed uh shared over most of these same airwaves that's right. Isn't that how they say it? I don't yeah, it's know. close enough. Most of the part, same part network. Of the, part of the network. There part we go. The, part of the network. <laughs> so we're uh, we're trudging through the history of Kiss album by album, but year by year, we are going now into uh, a very important album. Yeah, they uh, they got the success off of Alive, and now they're going to uh, they need a new material, and uh, they need it to be good. They need a good follow up to a successful live album. We are rolling into the. Destroyer album. Because mm-hmm. at that uh, point, they're rolling into late 75, 76 yeah. by this point. We're in late 75. Um, Touring their asses there's, off. There's a lot going on. So the uh, album Alive is actually released, I guess, what was it? Did we say September of 75? Yep, I think? September 10th, 75. So in this era, right here at the same time, uh, a coin, Bill Coin, and Rocksteady, I guess, is uh, in a lawsuit with Casablanca mm-hmm. over, like, give us money. Yeah. You, you, you promised money, and we, we have no money. And, of course, Casablanca are like, we're doing everything we can, man. <laughs> and we don't have any money either. We don't have any money either. <laughs> and they're like, well, that's not our problem. That's your problem. And so they don't really want to leave Casablanca because they realize and recognize how much Neil Bogart and Casablanca has, you know, Help committed him to him. Um, and I think, I don't know, did we talk about it in the last episode? I'm getting some of this stuff getting kind of confused because, of course, there is no time to turn. Oh, oh, oh. Yes. <laughs> and, and you know, they are so busy and um, there's so much going on that uh, we're going to start seeing stuff kind of overlap as far as, I guess, you know, the general eras of 
and certainly from one album to the next because mm-hmm. you know they're they're clipping out two albums a year which you think is crazy but that really wasn't that unusual i mean a lot Everybody. of a lot of groups were doing that in that era mm-hmm. um kiss was just doing it but uh they didn't have like uh they didn't have like you were saying they didn't have the funding behind it initially or if they did but they were just kind of just scraping by and uh just rolling off of, uh bill of coins credit cards and uh as soon as alive peaked and took off you know a lot of uh, problems were being solved, and uh, but then to your point, they're still figuring out what to do now that they are uh, selling records. Well, and, and before we even get to that, something I wanted to actually kind of mention because we always kind of like putting things in perspective. So, Alive came out in September of '75. We always kind of talk about how sometimes culture and what's kind of going on also affects pop culture and what's trending and what sells. The Vietnam War ended in April '75. So I wonder if maybe it was even part of that perfect storm of, okay, we finished up the war. Now we have this loud party anthem. Everyone's feeling excited because even in the later in the year, Jaws got released. And of course, that wound up being a huge success. So I wonder if maybe it was that part of it of America looking for that fun, fantastical release. And Kiss also just happened to be at the right place at the right time. We've talked about that in in the previous episode. It's the post-hippie kind of generation. We're getting into the excess. The 70s was, you know, the era of excess. And um yeah, you, you, everything sort of kind of become. It's you know you start seeing like you said with Jaws that was the first big blockbuster yeah. film. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you you get these kind of that was part of the appeal as for me as a kid was just these over the top characters. You have uh, you know characters like uh, the Fonz on television. Uh, you have a, a real life superhero running around on a motorcycle called Evil Knievel. I was about to mention uh, Evil yeah. Knievel actually left a really big impression with you. Like anytime I think about Russ, it's usually Evil Knievel and Kiss, and those two really <laughs> seem yeah. to kind of well, go yeah, hand yeah. in hand with yeah. you. Well, Evil Knievel, I mean, he just you know he was such a over the top personality and this just you know iconic presence, and he had such a you know charisma and it was just a force of a, of a, of nature it also probably didn't help that he had an action figure that he could jump over your kiss action figures yeah that's true, that's true. <laughs> um you know but you had like uh the six million dollar man on television also and um star wars was bubbling up star wars was about to come out and it was just it was just a different era and things just sort of were um it seemed like uh Whereas everything was so serious in the '60s, with you know everyone was very political minded and stuff, and I think everyone else by the '70s, you know, this is also post Watergate. I think people in post Vietnam, people are just worn out. They're just they're just tired of it, and it's just like let's just get some some mindless big entertainment in, and what fits that better? Than kiss. Oh, absolutely. And pure Especially uncut for, cocaine. Know, for, well, that, yeah. <laughs> which which has a, probably a lot to do with what we're going to talk about oh, yeah. today. Oh, yeah. I feel like the, within that sentence, we hit on like three things that foreshadow the upcoming on this record being big, fantastical cocaine and kiss. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, part of part of that has already been laid. The groundwork has already been laid in in I'll say even specifically with Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies album. That really started informing, I think, or reflecting the culture. And, you know, and by no coincidence, the producer is Bob Ezrin, who they're going to be bringing in for Destroyer. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to that, there's just a couple of things that have been going on. And I don't know exactly where all this fits in the in the overall timeline. But in this general era, um, you know, I think we talked about, I'm pretty sure in the previous episode, you know, Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise tried to talk uh, a coin into taking Kiss to another label. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, there were label. There was label interest in Kiss, and this is before a live success. Um, and I think we talked about it. You know, there was not. They had not had uh, generated um, commercial interest, but they were generating professional interest. Yes. Which that means, which is to say, there was a professional interest in recognizing there was a commercial opportunity. To, you know, to create, you know, there would be right. the right yeah, amount of marketing, the right amount of, and yada, whatever. Yada. And um, at the same time, Neil Bogart was trying to do the same thing. He was trying to uh, snag Kiss away from Bill of Coin. He had done it with Donna Summer. And Donna Summer's hit is just breaking with Love to Love You, Baby, which is very important. It's the other, it's the two fisted punch that brought Casablanca. F- 
up in, from the wreckage into the yep. into the black and, and but for good um a coin divides rock steady with a coin management and i think rock steady is essentially becomes primarily kiss and then or maybe i forget maybe i think well i know that we still saw rock steady logos on stuff for a while yeah i may be incorrect on this you can probably correct me on this in Rocksteady, where they primarily pushed the merchandising, and no, then a coin had, management no, the was... the merchandising was done under something called Bootwell, and that came, that's still not in play yet. Yeah, I knew that wasn't in play yet. I just didn't know if that's what it morphed into, but yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm probably wrong sure. on that. I don't know. Well, we'll get to that. Again, that's we're a not good, That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, but no, I, I do know I exactly what you're talking about, how it separated it. As, as all this is going on, you know, they're still thinking big. They're still thinking, you know, and I, I'm not talking about the band. I'm talking about people like Neil Bogart and McCoy. Bill O'Coin. They're looking to, you know, to build a career off of all of this. And they're building it off the backs of, of what Kiss is doing. And Kiss is the band that's in the trenches. And again, they're not super wealthy at all. And in fact, there is no wealth. They're not, you know... They're they're leaving leading a fairly meager existence, but they're projecting this super iconic like we're Kiss. Yeah, and you I find know. it interesting too that Bogart was trying to nab Kiss away from a coin after the Donna Summer thing because with Donna Donna Summer already had a proven hit with Disco, Kiss still wasn't a proven well, no, this hit. Is yet. The, this is probably all around the same time, right? But Kiss wasn't a proven hit quite yet. Around well, yeah, I guess with Alive, but but again. I would still assume that Donna Summer's record did a lot more than Kiss's did, regardless. So, and, and they all, and Casablanca, as we know, eventually did basically turn into the premier disco label. Yeah. So, I find it odd, though, that out of all the primary disco things, he still really had his eyes set on Kiss. They were still going to be the redheaded stepchild, even if he did gain well, full ownership of it. They were the first act that he signed. They're kind of the cornerstone of the label. And, you know, I. He, again, and I'm, I, I hate to say this, but I'm sure his his interest was largely a very crass, you know, I'm going to make money here. Yeah, it's like when they talk about when he produced uh, Dress to Kill. It's like Neil's not a producer. He's a business well, guy. Well, part of that was because of the deal with uh, Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise. They found yeah. out about that because... Neil Bogart is having an affair with Joyce Biowitz, who's yeah. the co-manager of KISS, which is, again, you've got this conflict of interest going on. And uh, and I think that's part of why Rocksteady and Acoin sort of divides into two companies and Joyce Biowitz quits. And, yeah. I, and I don't know if she goes to work for Casablanca or not, but... Um, you know, I'd actually really like to. Uh, I could be totally wrong. She could have, but I'd actually really like to hear Joyce's story. It seems like she'd have some pretty good perspective on yeah. the inner workings well, of I'm everything. Sure you, you know, a lot of this I source out of the books. There's a, a you know, there's a glut of Kiss books, and you know, they're. I think they're all worth reading if you're a Kiss nerd. There um, was also the Casablanca book that came out. Yeah, the, a handful I, of yeah, years the ago. Larry Harris wrote the In Party Every Day book. Yeah, and, uh, I, oh, I there's a lot that. of really great information on that. So I mean, you know, I'm not going to deny where I've cited, you know, or, or or fail to cite my sources. I've pulled a lot of this information from uh, a lot of these books. Um, yeah. And I think as long as we continue to cite those sources, I think we're going to be totally in the clear. And I think that's even a benefit is the fact that we're actually citing these sources and kind of going, hey, we've pulled it from this because we've noticed, not even just in KISS media, but just the media we enjoy with music and bands. We just hear a lot of information that gets spit out without any sort of, and I read it and found it here. Well, it doesn't, and even if it's in a book, doesn't make a gospel. Exactly. You know, so it's, it's, oh, it's, it's always good to kind of back it up I, as you know. that, being like, I'm not even saying this is true. That's yeah, where I read it. Especially from the members of the band. Like a, the bulk of my research for this episode came from the uh, memoirs of the four members, and there's a lot of uh, stuff that doesn't line up from a different perspective, but we'll poke holes uh, yeah. at that when we get to them. Well, you know, the thing is, it, there's a, you know, the old adage that, uh, there's always there's three sides to every story. Your side, yeah. my side, and then there's the truth. Yep. And, and nobody's wrong. Right. No one's telling a lie. In a well, you know, but uh, you know how that goes. So <laughs> let's rewind just a hair because uh, we're, we're. I want to talk a little bit about. They're, they're, well, there we ended. I think the last episode they've gone into the studio already. This is September of seventy five with Bob Ezrin. What are they doing? There's, there seems to be, 
even now, a little bit of confusion as to were they demoing songs mm-hmm. or were they cutting basic tracks for yeah. what would become Destroyer? Because from what I have figured out, uh, at this point, because of the lawsuit, uh, Casablanca gets wind of this and shuts down that session. I don't know exactly the details on that, if they had to serve an injunction or whatever. I don't, you know. But what were they doing? You know, this is in September of 75. So they're already laying the groundwork for what's going to be Destroyer. If they're already in there laying down basic tracks. Mm -hmm. Electric Lady, uh, correct? Well, so, I believe yeah. so. Yeah, that that so far that's all the information I've gathered. But you saying that actually filled in one little hole because the information I had usually ran on was shortly after they had like that little window of break after riding around promoting alive. Is that this was the first time that Gene and Paul really started doing their own outside writing? So like Gene would get together with like the road crew um, because. Uh, uh, Big John Hart could play, you know, drums or something, and uh, the uh, the announcer, what was the name, Jr. Yeah, Jr. Uh, could play drums? an instrument. Or, yeah, Jr. could play drums. I That's think what it he was. He plays on the Detroit or not the just uh, Detroit the, Rock City demo, on, I believe. I think he also plays on the God of Thunder demo, doesn't he? Possibly. Well, yeah. we'll get but, to that. Well, well, but yeah, we'll get to that. But what I'm getting at is, I believe those sessions were kind of what they were doing at that point because Paul even mentions doing demos at a coin's house or office. Okay, but they're in the studios. What I'm saying, they're with they're in Electric Lady. Right, I think they're just Bob cutting Ezrin. ideas. Maybe, it's possible. Yeah, now, Bob Ezrin insists they're cutting basic tracks. Really, and, and Bob his record usually, was, a, yeah, yeah. But Bob was, you know, admittedly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he, he had a little bit of a cold. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Bob Ezrin because I think it's interesting to note here. I mean, I don't know. Should, do we need to go into his history? I think everyone knows that. We you give know, a brief history. He's from Toronto. He's working for a company called Nimbus Nine, and they're making. Uh, records for like the guess who he works under a guy named Jack Richardson. He's a prodigy. I mean, at the time he's making what, by the time he's working on this kiss album, he's only 26 years old. That's insane. So he's already had, uh, what, how many Alice Cooper records under his belt at this point? Three or four? No, it's more like five, I think. He's, let's see, Love It to Death, Killer, School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies, and Muscle oh, yeah, No, he didn't yeah. do Muscle of Love. He, he bowed out on that. And But I forgot um, he went back that far. You're right. But he's got success already. He, he Well, obviously, he's, he, uh, he produced uh, Lou Reed's Berlin album, yep. which is... A pretty heavy record, mm-hmm. if it, if not not heavy as far as like musically heavy, but just a conceptually heavy totally. record. Yeah, and it's uh and it's pretty dense with its production. I mean, he's 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 the man. Went on to produce the Wall by Pink Floyd. He would go on to do that. Um, it's interesting to note here that um you know. So the the fact that he had worked with Alice Cooper and the similarities between Alice Cooper and Kiss, I came across an interesting tidbit, by the way, that uh, Shep Gordon, Alice Cooper's manager, saw a Kiss show and reckoned that it cost as much to produce a single Kiss show as it would an entire Alice Cooper tour. That's wow. not true, but that's how that's how impressed he was by it. Perception is reality, man. Yep. And. Bob Ezrin for allegedly first hears of Kiss, and I'm going to assume this would have taken him back to uh, the f- late summer, early fall of '74. He, mm-hmm. There is a kid that has lives in Toronto named Mike Longman who has started calling Bob Ezrin at home because Bob's phone number was still listed in the phone book, <laughs> and and would talk music. And one one of the things he championed very early on was man you got to do this bad kiss you know and just by coincidence he meets kiss and there's a little confusion as to where that happens but uh it seems to have occurred in a stairwell somewhere either at a local show or apparently he says it was at a tv studio i've never seen any footage of kiss in a tv studio i don't know what they would have been doing at that time but you know the 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 famous story is they bump into each other and Bob goes, "Do you like the sound of your records?" And they're like, 
Yeah. Well, if you don't, give me a call. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's, that's kind of mentioned in the Paul's memoir where uh, it was in a stairwell or something like that. I don't, I can't recall if I don't have that written down as far as that was well, the exchange or not. I think that would have had to. Now he, I think generally they date that in '75, but in, in in looking at the touring history and whatever, it's probably late '74, which means they're probably. I don't. Let's see. Well, now we. I haven't gone back. I was gonna say if it's TV I don't even studio, know if Hotter and Hell's out yet at this point. Well, then if it, if Hotter than Hell wouldn't be out the, at that point, TV studio that could be any of those early TV. Well, this times. is in Toronto. Okay. Well, then could it have been for the Come On and Love Me and Rock and Roll All Night music video shoot? That was at the Michigan Palace in okay. Detroit. See, this is why I love having you on the yeah. show. You're like my quick Google. I can just throw right. stuff out like that real quick, and you're like, no. <laughs> but the connection was made, and eventually, yeah. uh, you know, the the decision is made to bring Bob Ezrin in to do the next Kiss album, mm-hmm. and uh, he wants to work with them as much as they want to work with him. And again, he's 26 years old, I think here. Or twenty, maybe twenty five, twenty six, something like that. That's what blows my mind. Because I'm sitting here, I'm still the youngest at the table. I'm twenty eight. Well, consider you go back, and I mean, he's he's done all this Alice Cooper stuff, all in his early twenties. You know, mm-hmm. classics was, too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the guy has pedigree. He's a, he's a, he's, he's a, a classically trained musician. Yeah. So oh, yeah. he's bringing a lot of that into what we'll as we'll see. He wants to expand the appeal of Kiss, meaning he wants girls to like Kiss because it's very much a boy thing, you know. And and I think if anyone knows anything about music, you're not going to be successful if you don't appeal to girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not on any grand scale. And that's just the truth. And he, he's got to figure out a way to expand their appeal. And that's what he sees as a challenge. He wants to, he, you know, he sees that there is a potential to, to create a greater dramatic depth to this band that has so much drama around their kind of characters anyhow yeah and part of Uh, that is uh kicking their asses into gear musically yeah that and uh both gene and paul both saying the hymn challenging them to quit singing suck me fuck me songs yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so they're in the studio in september 75 they get shut down bill of coin tries to get bob ezrin uh he tries to secure him independent of of the label paying him out of his own pocket to keep this going because he's thinking, well, this album might go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, contractually, and Bob Ezrin understands this, he can't do that. Ezrin has been seeing that this is where things get confusing to me. It's like, how could they, you know, because I've read this initially that Bob, that Bill Coin was financing these sessions, but I think because they're under contract to Casablanca, by obligation, they have to give this stuff to Casablanca. I mean, it, technically, right. it belongs to the label. I, I, I know, I'm not exactly no, sure int- to the details, but you, do, that's interesting, that, am though. I making sense oh, with yes, that? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Even though they're paying for it out of their own pocket, anything they record by rights belongs to Casablanca because yeah, they're no, still we've, under contract we've, to them. We, we've had some friends that have actually dealt with uh, that exact thing to the point where our record's not even getting released even though they paid for it. That record company owns it and if they're not going to release it, he can't release it either. So no, we that's, that would have been under the same kind of situation just back then. Yeah. So they end up uh, touring out the rest of that year. They hit the road again. Um alive is happening now so they're uh they're they're uh it's successful people it's are successful. Com- they're packing places out yeah. and now mom now, and dad know who kiss are now real quick so were they already in the studio before touring alive yeah that's what that's mm-hmm. what because alive came out that same week so okay. those so, first two weeks <clears throat> in september they're in the studio with bob ezrin already doing something well, and again, well, say, let, let's, he let's says play, they're cutting uh, tracks. They say, or I guess it's it's believed that, but I've never heard any demo tracks that sound like they were recorded by Bob Ezrin. No, well, and well, what I was going to say is, so let's like let's it play has our all four of the guys on it. Let's let's put on mm-hmm. our let's put on our cape and cowls and let's play Batman a minute and let's do a little detective. So we know 
we might be jumping around in timeline a little bit, but I'm throwing out just things that my brain is working on. Possibly you have notes. I could have gotten notes on this, but I didn't realize this was like such a weird thing. And I, I didn't even know that, or I would have actually double checked. But we've discussed earlier that Detroit Rock City and God of Thunder demos. When was that recorded and do we know where? I think I think that information's out there, but I don't have it. Exactly. There's, there's wonder, people that have detailed those, those demos. To see if you can find that real quick see, while I, we're uh, rambling. Yeah, I've read that. Actually, got it pulled up right here. Okay, perfect. Actually, uh, I've read uh, that 15 demos were made in August of 75, and that they were all rejected except for God of Thunder and Detroit Rock City by Bob Ezrin. Well, that doesn't mean he recorded them. Yeah, that means exactly. he's heard them, he's, right. re- he's rejected them. Okay. Which, yeah, everything I read was which, just him okay, rejecting so, them. Right, so that would lead credence to Gene running off with the road crew recording demos, Paul recording demos with a coin, taking those, now Ezrin's hearing those and only picks out one and then probably rewrites some like Detroit Rock City and stuff. Well, but I wonder if that re-record time, them working on that, would now be that first session that we're now trying to figure out before it gets shut down. What do you mean? Filtering through those separate demos that Cap just referenced where he approved only one. I wonder if that was that time period that we're trying to sort through now. I, I don't know. He has them in the studio. But yeah. They, they, no, they're in Electric Lady here. Mm-hmm. But when they resume sessions in January of 76 and start recording, quote-unquote, for real, Right. they're at the record plant, the New York City location of the record plant. Um, so I don't know exactly what all has happened here. This is this is kind of a question mark, and, and, and like, what exactly was done in this period? Mm-hmm. What of it made the album if they were using it as basic tracks? Yeah, we can only it doesn't speculate. seem to make sense that they would be doing basic tracks, because usually they build a foundation of... Uh, drums and then you know that's what I'm thinking. but that's not exactly how they did it in the studio once they get to the uh, to the record plant they're they're recording the tracks essentially live in the studio although they don't keep the stuff you know, like they're ghost tracking yeah but they're playing live together when they're tracking like certainly for the drums um, but in January of 76 they also uh have their new costumes, but they're not going to debut these costumes again until summer. But the costumes are created and they do a photo shoot. Uh, a lot of the pictures that you know, that we all know, um, and particularly, uh, in particular, the, the like the there's a famous shoot where they're on motorcycles. Yep. All of this is done the first time they get these costumes. Um, they were designed by Larry Legaspi, who had been doing costumes for like LaBelle and Funkadelic and later would do Divine. The, the, and they were know, all on uh, Casablanca too, right? Uh, I don't think LaBelle was, but oh, okay. Funkadelic was. Um, and they also did, well, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. They were already well into the Destroyer sessions about two weeks in when they did a big PR thing for the recording of the symphonic parts for mm-hmm. Great Expectations and Beth. And that's where we get those photos of Ezrin dressed up at the top hat with the, top and the cape. Hat and the yep. tails, yeah. So uh, they're in the studio. They're at Record Plant, New York City location, Studio A. This is also where the Dolls cut their first album. It's where Aerosmith had cut Toys in the Attic. Uh, it's being engineered by Jay Messina and Corky Stasiak. Corky Stasiak will also pop up on... Uh, some other Kiss albums, or at least another Kiss album. So they got themselves a team. So, uh, y'all just want to run this, what, song by song here? Well, first things first, uh, I was wanting to make sure you weren't going to go back to it. Um, The one thing I'm just trying to think on is we do have the uh, the two sessions. I had something in my head right beforehand, right before I started leading into it if i'd cut you off i would have remembered but i didn't want to do that <laughs> oh, you could cut me off so you don't lose any of your thoughts well no i did yeah it felt like you were rolling into something good so i didn't want to do that but yeah uh, we we can go track by track i think that'd be fine 
Well, I don't know the order that these songs were recorded in. Well, the context with all of it, too, is uh, Bob, like I was saying earlier, is shaping everybody to learn how to tune their instruments and to keep time well, they, and things like uh, that, they, too. They, that was their, They were getting over their own uh, hurdles as far as being professional musicians, too. I actually do remember now. Yeah. Oh, uh, go ahead. Uh, okay, so you did say they went in the studio for a minute and then they hit the road again, mm-hmm. and then they went back to the studio to finish? Right. I think there is a little bit of credence to them to actually doing something in the studio because is correct me if I'm wrong, were they not playing Flaming Youth and I think Detroit Rock City on the tail end of that Alive tour? There, I've seen the videos of '76, but they were still in their Alive yeah, costumes. Yeah, that's why I'm that's why I'm differentiating the fact that they're doing these mm-hmm. costume pictures now, but they're not being used. They're they're for later for the destroyer. Okay, so if that was Spring of '76, that would still be after the second session. Yeah, then we'll okay, never mind. Yep. I, I thought I found a, I thought I found one extra little string for yeah, you to help no, connect this, it. Oh well, we're gonna get to that. Okay. Yeah. So, but in in January they're recording some. They're, well, in January they're recording the album finally. Okay, okay, yeah, in proper. Second yeah, from January to February, and every uh, session started with uh, Bob with the blackboard and a and a whistle, and a lot of well, cocaine on the table. Yeah, and- there was there was cocaine present. Uh, you know, as to what the usage was and by who that you know. I gotta, I gotta mention this. I'm, this was I'm in uh, stuff here. Uh, <laughs> I, I gotta mention this from uh, Gene's book. Uh, when he saw the little mirror that was kind of uh, stapled to the table, his first thought was, "That's stupid. You have to look down to see your reflection." Yeah. <laughs> that and uh, he said also he thought it was like powdered creamer, which had it been like the new hot thing in the seventies or sweet and low. <laughs> Because he thought it was like just some stuff for like coffee or whatever. Which also let let's think back for a second. How much do you think that is genuine ignorance? Because again, we do have to remember these are it's an it's a young teen immigrant now in the U.S. that probably hasn't really been around that much kind of odd I drug think, use. I think by that point he. Probably. I would think he would have I a would clue. Think he if would have a, more than a clue as to what was what. If your I bandmates mean, are Ace Freely and Peter Chris, it's, well, it's, a, fun, it's a funny Peter story. Were doing but it I don't too think, hard that yet. I don't think it's. I, I don't. Whatever. It's, but it, do we also see ourselves, or do we also see Gene putting himself in a position of seeming that dumb? No, I don't I think, think so. I, think, I, I, don't, I don't. What's that razor for? Do you stir your coffee with that razor? Yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> Allegedly, uh, they're greeted at the studio. I don't know which time, but apparently the, they showed up and Bob Ezrin was completely nude, say for a bow tie, <laughs> as a means to just sort of kind of break the ice. But I, Well, shit, know. I need to start doing that whenever time we get a new drummer. In, yeah. in, Peter's, in Peter's book, he talks about uh, how uh, he gets a fire extinguisher and just sprays it all over the yeah. studio. Yeah, well, that was they were trying to break up you know, the monotony. There's, mm-hmm. there's all those stories. I don't think that really relates much to anything important. I mean, no, I got well, actually real quick. Do, do we want to talk about studio stories first or do track by track? Cause Let's I feel just, like it's going to be hard to kind of bounce back and forth on that. Well, I don't know. What do you got? Well, I mean, I just, I, we know the traditional stories of, um, Bob creating like his own metrodome uh, yeah. by putting like a tiny little microphone in a box or putting a microphone in a room and hitting a box. So, you know, to kind of help keep count with Peter so he can, you know, stay on track better. Well, they before were, click tracks. Uh, you know, they were also allegedly, depending on the song, they would move the drums from one part of the studio to the other to record it in different ways, mm-hmm. which, you know, it seems like it would be a weird way of doing things that make things sound inconsistent but i well, not I only that i don't but know you know i've read how felt like drums were reversed during like a god of thunder and things like that too well, that would have been his trickery that he yeah. brings into yeah but still this stuff but yeah. um you know they were uh, it seems overall that no one enjoyed the process like all four like we're like oh my god this is like you know teeth grating but i feel like in retrospect gene and paul love and appreciate everything he did peter looks back at the experience like oh that was something we needed to do i still don't think ace looks at this no. experience as a positive ace, yeah, did not. ace didn't get along i don't think very well with uh, bob ezrin's methodology no no 
he uh, and uh, Peter were like they're field players, and yeah. Bob's telling them how to play specific Bob things. Bob has very specific ideas as to what he wanted and how he wanted it, and that's one thing that's interesting about Bob Ezrin is he not only does he put his stamp on the on the whole you know musical output, but a lot of it. I mean, it's 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 a smart way to move. You look on the album, and you see he gets a lot of songwriting credit as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a smart move on his part. But he, you know, and part of that's born out of necessity because he's trying to get what he wants. And if he can't get what he wants out of the four guys, he's still going to get it on the record by hook or by crook, as we will get to shortly. But mm-hmm. let's start. Let's just go track by track and kind of examine this. Uh, obviously, the album starts with the. Uh, with Detroit Rock City, but it starts with that long opening yeah. kind of montage. It's mm-hmm. like a sonic movie. Mm-hmm. If you close your eyes, you can kind of see it. Now, I think the idea they were trying to get was it, it's a it's a TV or a radio while someone's washing dishes. Yeah, I've always picked that, that up. I always thought when I first when I was uh, when I was young, I thought it was supposed to be like a diner. <gasps> I could see that. I, I just thought it was like the ambiance of a, of a you know the clicking of you know plates and what have you and what's but fun either is, way the point is is you're hearing the news report and it's about to tell you the story of what what you're going to hear in this song and do we know who the news reporter is well it's allegedly it's bob ezrin but gene simmons has claimed credit on it too i was gonna say gene's claimed credit on it and later on bob has backed him up i've also heard bob say it was him but later on he's been like oh yeah that was that was gene well either way uh you know they they did the binaural recording which was kind of a new thing where if you listen to it on headphones you were there you know yeah that was a brand new it was like it was like a 3d microphone brand new technology for the time and you know they do they went out and they you know got the you got the car engine noise and you know he, the guy's riding behind the wheel and you, i can see this in my head it's almost like you hear that that there's a change where it's like inside the car mm-hmm. and now you're outside the car and it's almost like you can just picture it like as, as a movie the way i yep. always did in my head was you're in the car and then it pictures and you can see the car riding along on the, yes. on the horizon you know and then you're back in the car again and he's listening he's you know and he's half drunk you know that's all really cool stuff to think who thinks of that stuff you know and obviously that's an idea and one of my favorite little techie uh little minutiae things about this is the way they actually got a rock and roll all night playing in the background they didn't like get a cassette tape and put it in the tape that can just hit play they had access to a short range yeah. radio projector yeah. in the studio so they hijacked a radio station and blasted rock and roll all night so they oh, actually got a legit radio station signal in for rock and roll all night within a car stereo that's pretty cool it's uh it's some interesting stuff and it's i tell you what's weird is you don't think about it now because we you know you don't know it any other way but i mean this goes on for nearly a minute before yeah. the song even starts you know, this isn't an album starting straight away with boom, you know, which is what the record company would probably want. Yeah. Like, Instead, you've got this like, what the hell is all this? And you know what? And even in the 21st century, the digital and CD releases do not separate it. You have to go to like greatest hits CDs to get like just straight to the point. Detroit Rock yeah. City. They well, still leave it as the whole track. Yeah, well, it, and rightly so. I mean, um, you know, this song has got. Ezra and all over it. I was going mean, to say, uh, you yep. listen. The demo we now have it exists and it's very, very different. Um, he obviously, the, he he wrote that solo. He wrote that solo mm-hmm. and he wrote that uh, bass line. That boom, boom, boom. Yeah, that, that was him too. That, that was. I was going to say that's not like anything Gene had ever played before. Yeah. Uh, that solo part, you know, is uh, you know, I think he wrote that on piano. Yeah, uh, they say it was a mixture of piano and aces. Uh, said before he kind of just held, uh, like Ezra hummed it to him, and he kind of just like ran his finger up the fretboards until he found the keys, and he's like, no, 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 different note. Okay, that one there, and yeah. just kind of helped build up that solo. And then Paul found the harmony, and mm-hmm. uh, now we well, have uh, yeah, a classic. And again, whose idea was that? I mean, all Ezra. of this seems like it was probably you know puzzled together as well, you know as a lot of these tracks are. Now, allegedly, this song is inspired by. A story that circulated that they heard that a kid was killed on their way on their way to a show. Mm. Do you know where that was allegedly said to have happened? Detroit. I mean, no. Uh, where 
Charlotte, North Carolina. Really? And no joke. James Campion, who wrote the Making of Destroyer book that's really excellent, spends the last, kind of like an epilogue, trying to track down this true story on this. I mean, he spends pages and pages on this. And and he uh, tracked as much as he could to try to figure out when and where this occurred and who it was. And kind of came up cold. Wow. So, uh, you know, that's only because it's based on an, a, you know, a specific idea that, you know, it's been, it's been burned into the collective consciousness. This comes from roadies as well. Oh, we right, heard right. about that when we were in Charlotte. Well, it could have been Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. Could have been Greenville, South Carolina. It's just right. Now. You know, he figured all this out. It was like, they're playing in that concentrated area over a course of a couple of days. Right. It could have been any of those places and they just conflated it in their head as mm-hmm. Charlotte. Uh, but then again, the story might be apocryphal. It might not even be true at all. Does it matter? No. No. <laughs> the myth is better. Yeah. I want to read that book now, though. Oh, the, yeah, the book is excellent. Um, and, and one other note about Detroit Rock City. Um, it's it's one of those situations where, you know, again, we love Gene and Paul to death, but, you know, sometimes their words can be a little bit, you know, rewritten. And sometimes other people's words are a bit more taken to the bank. And I and I kind of tend to lean on Bob Ezrin's words on things, especially when it comes to this, because I've heard him do interviews talking about Alice Cooper things and Cooper's 100% backed him up. It seems like Ezrin's got a decent memory, all things considered. He says up one side and down the other that there was no extra trickery that that was peter through and through on this record that that monstrous drum sound because gene and paul have even tried to say like a session guy came in to have to play detroit rock city i've never heard him say that yeah i've uh, gene has said that it was a mid-2000s interview someone was talking about you know just success and everything it's like oh you know doing on the whole ace and peter or drug ease thing that they went on for a minute and they're like oh yeah and even detroit rock city peter couldn't play that he couldn't play that uh intricate you know jazzy drum beat track Thing. Never ever heard that. Yeah. So uh, even Ezra's been like, you know, you can take that to the bank that Peter well, plays every note well, on that. Well, then that leads pretty well into the next one, which is King of the Nighttime World, mm-hmm. because uh, that role that kind of sustains through it. Yep. Uh, Eric Carr hated that and had a really hard time playing it and didn't like it. Really? I didn't hear. I've never heard that. I've heard that. Um, what's interesting about this song is this is not a Kiss song. No. Uh, it took me forever to know that. Was brought. This was brought to them by um, Kim Fowley, mm-hmm. and, and Kim Fowley was a kind of a low-level impresario in Southern California, and had done had his fingers in all kinds of pie. Mm-hmm. Probably uh, most uh, famously with the Runaways. With the Runaways pie. Yeah, I was gonna say I was I, I was I was hearing it. I wasn't gonna lean into oh, it. You had to. We, we, we looked at each other. It happened. Uh, you know he. he but if he, you know, you know the story. He, he curated the runaways um but uh he had worked some with a guy named i think his name was mark anthony yeah mark anthony who was in a band called the hollywood stars and they brought this song to uh they bring this to the band they bring this to bob first hollywood stars recorded uh i've seen it called demos i don't know they're pretty polished if they're demos they recorded an entire album's worth of material that never got released. They broke up. I'm not exactly sure the details of that. Eventually, they would get back together, I guess, and make a. Finally, did release an album in the late '70s, but a lot of the material they did in the early '70s never got released, and um, it got parlayed out to uh, the song "Escape" on Alice Cooper's "Welcome to My Nightmare" was also a Hollywood star song, and that was. You know, um, Mark Anthony again. Um, so those two were kind of uh, in and out with Bob Ezrin's yeah, uh, orbit not, for think, a minute. I think Kim Fowley was the connection there, and I can't remember exactly how that connection's made. Um, and if we can stay there for a second, those are two songs that it took me forever to know that they were not originals to both Cooper and Kiss. Why is it that that band really never got a lot of recognition? Because clearly they were pretty good at writing songs. Because I love both of those songs. Well, I guess that was uh, that was that was it. That was the recognition. I mean, I don't know. But there, that I guess. That, but what I'm saying is that being the recognition being, since. it took me forever to know. So they really didn't get the recognition yeah. if most if like the casual fan wouldn't know those recovers i think they kind of went out of their way to make sure that people didn't know that they were 
covers per se. That's my point. I mean, you know, that was because it was an, it was essential to maintain the mythology of your band being, you know, right. absolute. Yeah, uh, I that mean, beat, outside that, uh, short of having the songwriting credit, and right. you know, and those guys are you know he's making money on the back end because he's got the pub, I guess, publishing or whatever. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, that was what. Kim Fowley had to get his finger in there, you know, and he did, he did we, we gotta quit referring to Kim and putting fingers in things. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, it's a great song, and if you, if anyone has the interest, you can find it. They're, they're they're on obviously YouTube and whatever. And then the album was released. The Hollywood stars, all these, all that material that from that era on a album called. Um, Oh gosh! Now my my brain is slipping. I forget what it's called. People are <laughs> yelling at us. Right Something now. to do with the radio. God, uh, That's what it's my... it's it's a really good it's a good collection of songs. I'm surprised that they never caught any traction on their own. Because... Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting at. Is like they seem to be good songwriters, so it seems like you know probably just couldn't out keep... of the two, I'm sure they've got more in them. Probably just couldn't keep a band together to you know record them or anything like that. Well, we think, know nothing think, about that. You know, <laughs> but I... King of the Nighttime World has one of my that's one of my favorite. Uh, Riffs on the record for sure. I love that uh, that that Paul Stanley uh, chord all over it. Yeah, kind of during the the verses, the bow 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 bow. Yeah, look look that up real quick. Hollywood stars because I don't I don't want that to go unstated. The the album it's um totally. Now I'm gonna have to it's actually. Right, it's right at the tip of my tongue. Um, I'm sure by the time you look it up, I might have it. But actually, you know the story that inspired the song originally had mm-hmm. something to do with these guys. You know being young and stupid a guy one of the band members was getting a uh which how shall we say this discreetly um uh, what am i looking up album titles yeah it's um he, he he was getting some enjoyment he was getting um oral pleasure, pleasure. <laughs> if you will and and didn't know that the other guys were in a car like laughing and spying on him and they turned the headlights on and and then his girlfriend got nicknamed the Headlight Queen. Ah! Uh, <laughs> and that made its way into the lyric, you know, you're my Headlight Queen. Nice. Everything I've seen is just like is all self-titled with Hollywood stars. Yeah, well, that's the one album. They have, um... Oh, type... I forget. It's it's heart like not heart like a radio. I forget what it's called. Let's see, I should know this. I feel like an idiot because here we are recording this. I should have had this in my notes. Shine like a radio. Shine like a radio. There it is, and it's really good. Uh, the point is, it's really good. It's worth seeking out, and it's it's not just because of the Kiss connection. It's a good album. Uh, what would you kind of relate it, it to? It's just early seventies kind of. You know, it's pop not hard rock. rock, but kind of like pop rock. Yeah, um, cool though. I'm a fan of that. It's yeah, it's really really good. I mean, it's guitar based. This you know, it's not you know, wimpy or whatever. <laughs> cool deal. It's not the you know, it's not like the Osmonds. <laughs> but hey, the Osmonds had some rocking tunes, Dude. man. What was the? Uh, no, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's not like Puppy Love, is right? But now then we got uh, God of Thunder right after that. God of Thunder is interesting because Paul Stanley wrote it. And it was a completely different song. It, well, the demo is. Yeah. Because just because of that drum beat, really. It's yeah, faster but, but and but it's that got, changes the yeah, whole thing. It changes thing. the whole feel and vibe. But Bob Ezrin's the one that went, wait a minute, God of Thunder, you, you're not the God of Thunder. The demon is the yeah. God of, Not Paul Stanley, not Gene Simmons, but the characters. Right, you know this. This you know the lover is not the god of thunder. Yeah, the demon is the god of thunder, and That's, he switch. He pulls it away, and I know Paul's probably like, "What the fuck?" I know it. <laughs> That's- that's my song. <laughs> and you know it is because in recent days, like within like the last five years or so, Paul takes every chance he gets to be like, I wrote Gene's biggest song. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's true. And that's fair. It's fair for him to take the credit because it's, it, you know. It's true. It, it's a... Uh, you you can again we we're looking at all this with hindsight mm-hmm. but you compare the demo to the finished song and you know all I've ever known is the finished song yeah it's Gene's signature song you you've always associated it with Gene you never think oh Paul wrote that 
that even is though his we moment. had the even when we were kids, we had the album. We you know we look at the stuff. We look at those songwriting credits. We'd be like, well, that's weird. Paul wrote that, you know. Mm-hmm. But you don't hear it as a Paul song. But until you hear the demo of his version, and then you hear the still, DNA, it's still a little different though from what Paul would normally write. It doesn't sound like even in his demo, it doesn't seem like. Lyrically, well, apparently, you know, apparently he was writing that one, and I want you around the same time. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Now think about the riff, and I want yeah. you. But it's got a, it's more of a funk kind of a thing. It has yeah. a more funk vibe, which is you oh, know, it absolutely does. Which we've talked about. There's a heavy R and B influence on a lot of what Kiss does, and it never gets much noted or recognized. But mm-hmm. you see it, especially in that demo, absolutely. And it just gets morphed into what it is on the on the on the album because it. Becomes a gene thing. Got a thunder. They slow it. They slow it down, and it, it plods. I think it plods a little bit. I'm not a. I'm, I'm not, not a fan a of the studio of version yeah. either. Um, I think it's interesting. You know, he brought in his kids, mm-hmm. and they're doing Bob's all the kids. little. Yeah, Bob Ezrin has his kids on it. He's his kids are on several of, the, of his records. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're you know they got that. In fact, through the yeah, with the like some sort of uh, radio walkie-talkie yeah. kind of thing. Because I heard the live version first, and then I heard the uh, studio version on the radio one time, and then with all the kids on, it, and I just went like, "This is too weird." I like the live version better. And as legend tells, don't know if it's true or not. Legend tells because, of course, kids and animals are the two things you don't deal with. Kids will never act on command. Mm-hmm. In order to get the kids to do like just random screams and make it sound genuine, he let them hang out the studio for a couple hours and then lied to them and said it was bedtime. No, that's not God of Thunder. That wasn't God of Thunder? No, that's... um, There's a song called The Kids on Mm -hmm. Berlin, and the song deals with the kids being taken away from the mother by, Mm -hmm. by the... I guess the social services or whatever, you know, and that's the lyric. They're taking the children away because they say she has been a bad mother. Right. And there's a part in it where it plays this sort of atonal kind of flute part and the kids start going, mama, mama. (laughs) And and they're crying. And that's when he told them, oh, okay. Bedtime. Got it. Okay, okay. okay. So, but, yeah, that, that was the, my, that's where I conflated that story then, got it. Because people thought, what did he do to those kids to make them cry like that? <laughs> I just told him it was bedtime. I just told him it was bedtime. Yeah. If you've ever been a dad or been a brother or sister, you, you know, know that's all it takes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's, it's interesting that he does this on God of Thunder. I don't know why he would be inspired to do something like that, but I can tell you how I heard it when I was young, when I was small. I heard it as a song where kiss are torturing these kids <laughs> or a kid we just heard it as one kid yeah, yeah yeah you know and i always pictured that like somehow he's like you know tied to a chair or something and they're just you know performing around him with the blood drooling and all that you know <laughs> and he's like no because kiss was kind of scary when you're like especially when you're like five or six oh, you know yeah. my, again a lot of my in, initial impressions of kiss was it was, was kind of like what the hell is this well, you, know? Dude, well, even, you know i wasn't thinking what the hell i was five but you know, even with all like, of what is this? even with me getting everything up to the you know mid 90s all at once man i still put on that one as a kid and i and i got almost the same picture it, mine was just more or less a kid being tortured in hell and he's just hearing this all around and just like just he's in hell getting burned or whatever you know whatever the kid's mind your, right. your mind wraps whatever. up the, yeah. that's what I, that's part of what made it fun is again it's what you bring yeah. to it with you it, it you know it leaves enough open space for you to bring your own imagination into it and feed it what you want you know and what you feed it is what you're going to get back i heard the kids as like little minions to gene yeah little demons yeah, oh, yeah that's kind of cool i never thought of that because mm-hmm. there's kind of like they're kind of upbeat on the track they're like okay yeah well there's well, they, except there's for that one that goes yeah. Ah, yeah. Yeah. he goes it's after the solo and he yeah. goes i am the lord of the waste and he's yeah. like ah! yeah. it sounds like he's being terrified <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and plus also being raised in a christian home hearing the line slowly rob you of your virgin soul i always knew that was a devil evil thing so I'll, <laughs> so, I'll, so i also kind of like related to okay no the kid is in hell and this is what he's hearing and, in and, hell and, and, yeah, I come from a religious home too. I can only imagine you now, like, oh, gee, you, you know, when you're young, you're like, why, why do you hate Kiss so much, mom? <laughs> I love that all three. So I was raised in a church. Silently so, points at this record. This is kind of a quick sidebar, but all three of us were raised in like a church kind of scenario, and yeah. that's probably 
and you know us gravitating towards Kiss kind of makes a little bit more sense now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you had to rebel, man. So that leads into Great Expectations, a complete one eighty. Well, this is this is Bob Ezrin, yeah, almost through and through. I mean, even I think the demo was built around an arrangement that. Bob Ezrin must have came up with. I don't know what the story is on the demo on that. You know, in the demo, of course, he had the idea of of uh, name dropping all the That's other what, members. I like that. I like it. You watch Paul playing yeah. guitar. You watch Pete beating his drums. drums. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think that's cool. Because when I remember listening to the lyrics to that as a kid, and everything is so singular, it's always... I and, and the Lord of the Wasteland. Well, yeah, well, I want to well, rock and roll that, all night. Well, not even that, but in within that song, the lyrics are very singular into me. And when he refers to playing drums, even as a kid, I'm sitting here going, Gene, you don't play drums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this came out of a song. You know what? I didn't write this down. I'm so mad at myself for this. It had a different title. God. Why did I not write that down? Really? I, I'd it always heard Great Expectations. It was not written as Great Expectations. I think that was Bob Ezrin's idea. And it was his idea to use the Beethoven the eight. thing in there. The, the I don't Is it pronounced pathetic? Something like that. And pathetic, pathetic. I don't know. I'm a guitar, and, and, a guitar teacher, not a know, classical so, music instructor. But, you know, obviously, <laughs> very obviously, you know, Kiss weren't ever going to come up with that. That's not an idea that was going to drop into their... No, and, and musically the demo is so similar. Exactly what you say. It had think, to have been something that Bob had, had arranged that because they were obviously they were writing together by by September of seventy five. We know that, right? So, absolutely. Um, a lot of this could have been born out of that. Uh, you know, they recorded the orchestra. We were talking about this a little earlier. Uh, they did all of this in one day because all the orchestra guys were all union and they're on union time so they had to get it in and get it done and which is interesting because they've turned it into a pr event and they're trying to get all this done in a very you know tightly controlled little piece of time because Mm -hmm. they don't want to pay overtime on union dues Mm -hmm. and they get it i mean all this is essentially all the symphonic stuff is essentially recorded live Peter allegedly does well. We'll get to that. We'll get to the Beth part in a minute. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get to that. We'll have, um, we'll have to spend some time on that one. Obviously, you know we we've talked about the you know the photos that have circulated with Kiss and they're they're in their destroyer outfits. They are not yet using them, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. So, but they knew they were going to, so they just had to go ahead and dress well, on this up. Is all this is all because it's all going to be you know geared towards the destroyer thing. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's uh let's flip the record let's over. Let's flip the record over. Side two, we'll pop the needle on, and we get flaming youth. That's been a new favorite of mine lately. I don't know why, but this is the most Frankenstein song. This is the most. Uh, is this the only song that's credited to all four? Uh, yeah, Ace, Paul, His, Gene, and Ezrin. I don't see. I didn't uh, see Peter's name okay, on it. Well, well, Peter, they they yeah. won't give Peter credit. Well, but they, it all comes from pieces of song parts that they came. And Bob's like, well, what do you got? What do you got? So, you know, I know there's a big part of it comes from a Gene song called Mad Dog. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's the foundation of the song. Mad Dog. And, uh, you know, he's wanting them to play in 7-4 time. Now, what that means, I don't know. Cap. And seven four time. I, I'm not a drummer, so you're a music <laughs> well, teacher. Well, they can't get it because. But it's a different. It's not one two three well, four. It's the not, band has yeah. to play in seven four time, which I think is probably might be the way that riff is written and probably unconsciously. No, But he just has sense. Peter playing. Yeah, you know, all the mm-hmm. way through it, which just keeps the, the thing going. Right. So how they, you know, he just sort of. Stitch that together out of ideas, and here you've got pretty anthemic song. I'm, you know. I really do like it a lot too. And and another note from the demo one, another possessive change. The original lyrics: Our parents think we're crazy, yeah. and they yeah. hate the things we do. Yeah, becomes, we're stupid, and yeah, we're yeah, lazy. Changes the dime. Uh huh. Well, I wonder if that was another Ezra move, Probably, being like, so. "You need to make these songs possessive yeah. instead of inclusive." I wouldn't doubt that. It seems like I've read something about that actually. I like the arrangement trope where it's like uh, 
it does the first chorus and then only gives like maybe like one or two bars of a second verse and then straight to the uh, chorus yeah, after all, that. It's a weird. The songwriting has definitely progressed on this record, and it's due to Ezrin. Well, and then of course, most famously and most controversially, he's introduced a new instrument into the mix here. <laughs> the the, uh, the uh, calliope. Yeah, I was gonna say I was waiting for someone to say Which it. Which I, I never be able to... heard as a calliope when I was a kid. I just thought it was like an electric organ. That, yes, I, thank too. you. I was gonna just call I it an organ. I never heard that as a calliope. And and I've the... talked about this with friends since, and they're like, you, 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 "That boop 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 boop," and I'm like, "I never heard that." And for those that don't, never clicked with me until years until I read that it was a calliope. I was like. Oh, <laughs> Calliope is what you would hear like circuses and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. I think they were pretty put off by that. They, they, you know, that's how I know about it being a Calliope now because it's still a point of contention. I think amongst the members, they didn't care for that added to their to their and the thing. And the other controversial part of this track is mm-hmm. that uh, they got a ghost guitar player on it allegedly yeah, dick wagner that see i was gonna bring that up let's go into sweet pain here because then we can toss ties more into about both of them dick wagner because the question is is like okay there's not a lot to be said about sweet pain it's uh although i think the riff is pretty unusual yeah that all those guitars on top of it like i heard it was supposed that, to be a take on you know that's like not something they had ever done i so we know now that Dick Wagner was brought in to play lead guitar on this mm-hmm. because Ace allegedly wasn't available. Blah blah blah. Whatever the, the whatever poker game. Yeah, now it's always we've hard. Got whatever. Destroyer uh, revisited Redux, whatever it is, and it's got the quote unquote lost Ace solo, which I think is really not even intended to be a legit solo. I think it was probably him working an idea because that's how he. So, so mm-hmm. I did my own personal research on that. Okay, go for it. I actually grabbed that MP3 track. I put it in my multi-track recorder, and I lined up uh, the beginning of the solo because it loops. Uh, he could basically goes through that version of the solo twice. I lined them up perfectly in the sound editor, and I played them back. It's the exact same thing. So they only grabbed half of an idea of a solo and looped it. It's the exact same guitar track uh, played yeah, twice. twice. Yeah, <sighs> they, they just copied and pasted it in twice. I got you. So that, I 100% agree and believe with what you're saying. I think they just pulled out a demo. They pulled out a scratch track, something that Ace was just right. messing, messing around with. with, not even close to a finished idea, and went, oh, well, this is at least an Ace. Ace played these notes, we'll put it on here. Well, he brought in Dick Wagner to finish it for whatever reason. But and, and do we need to discuss Dick Wagner and his history? I mean, uh, he was one of uh, Bob's go-to guys at this time. Dick Wagner had been in a band called The Frost in Detroit and uh, was part of, again, you know, that Michigan thing. Yeah. So much that came out of Michigan in that early, late 60s, early 70s. And was, uh, he had partnered with Steve Hunter who had played in Mitch Ryder's Detroit and they ended up playing uh, they're the guys that are playing on Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal album mm-hmm. live album and then all those guys transitioned over to become the new Alice Cooper band when Alice went solo and if you have the uh, Welcome to My Nightmare concert film there's the famous guitar duel between Dick Wagner and Steve Hunter and uh, so you know, and then criminally you know, overlooked players, in my opinion, they too. They were used in a lot of different aspects. Uh, the live version, quote unquote, live version of "Train Kept a Rolling" by Aerosmith. Yeah, the trade-off leads on that with Brad Whitford and Joe Perry. Nope, nope. <laughs> Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner. Ghosting. They don't get credit, but that's who it is. And they would continue to work with Bob on a bunch of things, like uh, Peter Gabriel's first solo album. Yeah, they're 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 he he. He was their go-to guy, and Dick Wagner particularly had a lot of influence in songwriting on the uh, Welcome to My Nightmare album for Alice. He wrote Only Women Bleed, and um, 
now it's escaping me. Escape now. It's, not escape. <laughs> uh, it's uh, I think it's also important had, to note, though. Uh, one of the reasons we were bringing up, you know, that not being a finished Ace solo is one of one of the things that we do hear from the Kiss Camp over arc um, is that Ace tried to do solos on it and it just wasn't working. Well, so no, they had the to bring. They, heard then they that, were wanting to bring him back no, in to redo story, it, and oh, that's and when he was no, saying yeah, no. Okay. He's like, yeah, they want him to come back that in may and well do be more. True. That may be uh, it may be it. Who knows? Right, but that's not the what's representation of what we heard. What's interesting to me is like for all the time and effort that he's putting into all this stuff and he's intricately working out all the details and stuff, somehow he has enough trust to be able to make a phone call and say, Hey, why don't you come over and put on some guitar? Okay. Yeah. Thanks. In and out. In and out. And it's like, wait a minute. All this time you're spending and all this guy's gotta do is come in and go done yeah that's kind of how bob ran too but, it's like time is money but it, it kind of shows you know i mean in a way it kind of shows a differentiation of uh how much trust he has in their musical abilities well from day one he was always saying you know kiss didn't know anything i had to teach them how to tune their guitars well, you know that's and that's true, of course but, a stretch yeah. but i mean but that's Hearing him is, say that does at least put per, yeah. the perspective of how he saw them. If he's you know throwing the jab of oh I had to teach them how to tune their guitars, he clearly did not respect them as musicians at all. Well, so yeah, he I, would just immediately. But he be respected like, them as songwriters. As songwriters, he understood. Yeah. He understood that they were they were kissed. They he understood what I like about them is that they weren't you know skilled musicians quote unquote. They played a lar- largely by feel. They had an energy and an excitement about them, you know and. A lot of, and we'll, we'll get into this when the album comes out because a lot of people feels like Bob Ezrin squeezed all that energy and excitement out and you know made this very cold, dense, yeah, you know, not a kiss record in their a, eyes, not a kiss record. Or ears. Uh, but the irony, of course, is it becomes in a way the definitive kiss album. What's interesting? Well, here's a question. Okay, so we know Dick Wagner's in, and this goes back to what you were talking about with Flame and Youth. We know he's in on uh, Sweet Pain for sure. Yeah. What else has he played on this? Because I start listening to this with a new year once I got to thinking about it. Flaming Youth sounds like it could be him. I've heard rumors of that, which is why I was kind of turned to him and agreed. Yeah. He says he plays on three songs, and I think one of them he claims is Shouted Out Loud. I think he's on four songs. Um, I'm trying to think of like all the uh, solo parts on all of the... Uh, it's, it's debated that he's playing the atonal stuff on... I don't know if atonal is the right word, but the kind of dissonance on uh, God of Thunder. Um, because it's it's kind of in a way... But, you know, people are like, well, Ace can do that too. And it wasn't like it was anything... You know, it was more of a, a feel that they were achieving. Yeah, and they're probably putting layers and things like that, too, and uh, with like different guitar tones, and I'm sure Ace wasn't I'm around for all those I'm either. I'm wondering if Ace even plays lead on Detroit Rock City. Whoa, well, I'll tell you what. You know what? We're, we're, we're running hard here, and this looks like it's going to have to be a two-parter because there's just so much to mine out of this. So we're going to stop here, and hopefully you'll join us for a second episode as we really do our deep dive into Destroyer. So... For this part one, I guess now, as it will be, uh, I'm uh, Russ Ward, and for Cap Nunn and Alex Stiff, please join us for part two of No Time to Turn. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash somethinggoodnetwork.